Okay, hello. Am I on? All right. It's so good to see you tonight. Allow you to take your seat. Uh, if this is your first time with us, like Pastor Matthew said, my name is uh, Andrew, and I'm the lead pastor of New Life East. And uh, it's a joy to be with you. We got some East people in the house tonight. Joy to be with you tonight. I was thinking while I was worshiping uh, on the front row over there that my wife and I have been coming around New Life Friday night for about 10 years now. I used to help to plant a church in Denver and we would come down here and uh, preach sometimes. And man, you could just dip your heart, as the old song goes, dip your heart in the stream of life. There's something about Friday night that is just so special. The presence is so thick here. And so just to, it's just refreshing to be here in your midst. I'm going to be uh, preaching out of the book of First Timothy uh, tonight. So if you have Bibles, I'll invite you to turn uh, in them to First Timothy chapter 1. I'll say something about that in just a second. I have a quick little announcement, fun little thing in the Arndt family. Uh, last, just this past month, I released a new book uh, called Streams in the Wasteland, Finding Spiritual Renewal uh, with the Desert. Thank you. I appreciate it. Finding Spiritual Renewal with the Desert Fathers and Mothers, uh, which is the kind of idiosyncratic book that Andrew Arndt would write. Um, but the Desert Fathers and Mothers were a group of people in the first few centuries of the church that were very disturbed by the things that they saw in society, very disturbed by the things that they saw in the church. They were troubled by the fact that they felt like the church was losing its way. And so they withdrew to the deserts of Egypt and Syria and Palestine to try to center themselves in God and to try to center themselves in healthy relationship. What does it look like to walk out the kingdom way together? And their sayings and their stories have been preserved for us. And it was really about five or so years ago, I went through a pretty significant personal crisis and started reading their sayings and their stories on the daily. And it really transformed my life. I mean, like truly changed my life. I found myself all of a sudden, not just finding my footing personally, but I found myself beginning to like pastor out of the things that they said. And so I wrote this book really with two audiences in mind. Number one, I think that we're living in a time now in the church that's very morally and spiritually confusing. I think it is kind of a spiritual wasteland out there. And so I wrote this book to help people find their way, people in the church find their way spiritually. I also wrote it kind of to provoke them some, but then I also wrote it for people, um, and I wrote like every word of this book, I wrote with this group near and dear to my heart, um, the spiritual but not religious crowd. Like that group of people that they would believe that there's a capital S something out there but for whatever reason, they're standing at a distance from the church. And so we even kind of like designed it and titled it in a way that was non-churchy. So like that group would uh, be enticed to reading it. Fun little story. I'm going to give you a quick testimony and then I promise I'll preach. But uh, some close friends of ours who attend New Life East, they used to live right next to New Life East. And uh, when the book was first available for pre-order, they pre-ordered it many, many months ago. And then they moved. And the new people that moved into their house are not believers at all. And so on the day that the book released, those folks went to the mailbox, opened it up. There was a book in there, and they started reading it. And so they texted our friends, and they said, look, uh, a book came in the mail. We started reading it. We can't put it down. We don't intend to put it down. And can we come to church with you sometime? So, yeah, thanks be to God. And honestly, guys, that's like my highest hope for this book is that it would wind up in the hands of people that are far from Jesus and that they'd read it and they would be entranced again by, or maybe for the first time, uh, by the beauty of Jesus and they'd wind, uh, wind up taking steps towards him. So uh, buy 17 copies. I'm gonna, they're available in the back after the service. 
And, um, and I'll be signing copies if you're into that kind of thing. I'll write a little love note in there for you. Okay, no more talking about the book. The book of 1 Timothy. Uh, this is one of a collection of letters that we know as the pastoral epistles. And so Paul is writing at the end of his life here. And uh, it's First and Second Timothy and Titus really kind of make up those books. Paul is writing at the end of his life. And he's got these young protégés, Timothy and Titus, who are leading congregations that Paul was either involved with or he helped to found. And so now towards the end of his life, as these young pastors are leading these congregations, Paul is writing some words to them to help them figure out, like, just what is my job as a pastor again? And what is the church supposed to be again? And so he says this in 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is really, I think, this is kind of like the definitional statement of what's going on in the pastoral epistles. Uh, Paul writes, although I hope to come to you soon... Um, it's possible that he was writing from jail in 1 Timothy. We know that in 2 Timothy, he was definitely writing from jail. But he says, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, verse, uh, next part of verse 15, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. So why is Paul writing these letters? He's trying to remind Timothy of how people in the household of God are supposed to conduct themselves. What are we supposed to do? What are we not supposed to do? What are we supposed to believe? What are we not supposed to believe? It's all about how we conduct ourselves as God's people. And so even though these are written to pastors, they're really written for us as the church, for us to know what's the way that God has called us to walk. And so I'm going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Pastor Daniel, I think, will spend six or seven weeks. and, uh, And then it will be Advent and then Christmas and then the year is done. Oh, my gosh. Time goes too fast these days. Okay, let's, uh, before we open the scriptures together, let's pray. Your love is better than life itself. Better than life itself. When all things are rolled up and done away with, it's, it's you. It was always you. Alpha and omega, beginning and the end. And And it's us with you. The scripture says that we've been chosen from before the foundation of the earth. And we don't really know what that means, but we do know that it means that you have set your affection on us before we were ever a thing. When we were just thoughts in your mind, when we were just dreams in your heart, you already loved us. And now here we are, we have bodies and we're living lives And we are your dream come true. We are your thoughts taken flesh. And you love us and you only ever always love us. And we can trust that. Help us trust that. God, help us. We're so grateful for these scriptures that speak to us. Paul says elsewhere in 1 Timothy, he says, How from infancy you've known the holy scriptures. In all scriptures God breathed. And it's useful. For teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness, that the man and woman of God would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You've breathed these scriptures. Your spirit rests upon them and works in them to change us. Oh, we're praying that you would change us. That you would help us rise up into your image and into your likeness. That we would be more of your dream come true on this planet. Grant that, we pray. We're asking that wherever we need the word of God to come to us, that it would come tonight. That wherever we need the ministry of the Spirit, that the ministry of the Spirit would come. That wherever we need to be reminded of Jesus Christ, that we would be reminded of Jesus Christ, crucified, died, and raised to life again. Come, 
be the God who gives to us all the things that we need. We're asking that. We say, may the words of the preacher's mouth tonight and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said. Amen. First Timothy chapter one and verse one, Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Jesus Christ our hope to Timothy my, what does the text say? It's not rhetorical. I need you to participate with me. To Timothy my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. Amen. Uh, uh, Paul, right out of the gate, I love this. This is not just kind of like a cold set of instructions that he's passing along, but he refers to Timothy with these words of endearment. To Timothy, he says, my true son in the faith. The relationship between Paul and Timothy in the New Testament, I think, is one of the great little storylines of all the New Testament. When Timothy was a young man, we know this from the scriptures, that Timothy was born and raised by a Jewish mom and a Greek dad. And we don't know how long he knew Jesus for. It might be that his mom was a devoted, uh, a devoted Jewish woman that raised him in that way, and then he had an encounter with Jesus somewhere along the line. We don't really know. But what we know is that uh, Timothy's mom was very godly, and Timothy's grandmother was also godly. And Timothy was this young man who grew up in the house of God and, for the most part, loved Jesus. And one day, in Acts chapter 16, the rock star, the celebrity, the up-and-coming preacher, the Apostle Paul, comes through town And Timothy and Paul have this encounter with one another, and we don't really know all that happened there, but we do know that some kind of a connection was made. And I love the thought of the young Timothy seeing this guy. It's Paul. Paul, who had been the great persecutor of the church. Paul, converted by Jesus. Paul is here, and he's talking about the kingdom of God. And look at how he wields the scriptures, and look at how he preaches, and look at how all these people are coming into the kingdom. Because Paul, it's Paul. It's amazing. Look how Paul talking about the church, and Paul talking about the mystery of God. Paul! The young Timothy, you know, with stars in his eyes over Paul. And then there's some kind of a connection made. And Paul goes, hey, young man, would you like to come along with me on my missionary journeys? And Timothy at that moment surrenders his life like the disciples did with Jesus. Timothy surrenders his life to that call and starts becoming really Paul's protege. And as we learn throughout the New Testament, you know, Paul had so many companions. Some of them kind of came into his life and then came out. He had lots of relationships that kind of collapsed along the way, but his relationship with Timothy never had any bumps in the road. It just got tighter and tighter over time to the point where Paul really trusted Timothy. In fact, trusted him enough to become the pastor of the church at Ephesus. Paul and Timothy loved each other. And I love this little moment at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul, writing from prison, says to Timothy, and I just want you to hear the affection here. Paul says, Oh, Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. And verse 11, only Luke is with me. (laughs) Poor Luke. (laughs) Smart guy, not a great hang, you know. (laughs) Only Luke is with me, he says, Get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. And I sent Tychicus to Ephesus, verse 13. And when you come, listen to this, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls and especially the parchments. Did you hear that in Paul's voice? Paul's like, Timothy, man, I miss you. Timothy, I love you. Timothy, would you come and spend some time with me? And also, Timothy, when you come, would you bring my favorite sweatshirt? 
you know, the one that I really like, I've had for a long time, and it's warm, and whenever I'm feeling a little, you know, just kind of like psychologically unstable, you know, I put it on, and all of a sudden I feel good again. Would you bring that one? And also those books, my favorite books, you know which ones they are. Would you bring them that tight? I want to make this point to you tonight. Faith, first observation from First Timothy, faith makes, faith makes family. These men didn't know each other, but somehow the mystery of Jesus Christ brought them together, so much so that Paul could look at Timothy and say, you're my true Son, again, the faith, faith makes family. I'm so blessed to have been born and raised in church. I grew up in a church in central Wisconsin and a group of six or 700 people. And I love those people and they were family to me. So many amazing brothers and sisters in the faith and fathers and mothers in the faith. And I do remember thinking when I graduated high school, 18, and got ready to you know, leave more or less permanently, I remember thinking maybe that thing that I had there, that sense of spiritual family, Maybe that was just a fluke, flash in the pan, once in a lifetime thing. Maybe it's just a thing that happened in central Wisconsin and it'll never happen again. And we moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma. And within a very short amount of time, a few short years, the spirit drew us together with people and all of a sudden faith started making family. People I would look at and I go, these are my brothers and sisters and these are fathers and mothers in the faith. And then we moved out to Chicago, Illinois. I went and got my master of divinity up there. And again, I thought, well, maybe I'm just kind of two for two. Maybe we got lucky twice, you know? And we went up to this church in Chicago and these people were different from us and we didn't know a soul when we moved to Chicago. We went there, went to this church and the same thing, faith made family. And we have friendships that we made in that church that have lasted to this day. I just talked to a couple folks from that church this week and then we moved back down to Tulsa. I became an associate pastor there and I thought, well, maybe I'm three for three. I just got a lucky guy. Then we went to this church in, back to this church in Oklahoma, a different church than the one that we were at the first time. And there again, brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, faith makes family. And then I planted a church in Denver and faith made family. And then we came here and we were part of the Friday night staff for a couple glorious years. And we just fell in love with all of you. And we have relationships in this community that are going to last us a lifetime. And then we planted New Life East. And those people now, like the Spirit is writing those people, faith just keeps making family. And it's not just the brothers and sisters in the faith, though certainly that. But I think what is so staggering and so beautiful about the church is how it gives us fathers and mothers in the faith too. People that like look out for you and have your back and watch over you. And one of the most significant spiritual fathers that I ever had in my life was when I was a young associate pastor in Tulsa. I remember 25, 26 years old, you know, eager to prove myself and show that I really can't do it. I'm amazing, you know, and just all of that sort of useful brash hubris. And there was a older couple that went to our church there, Paul and Juanita Leeming. And Paul was a retired pastor in his 80s, well-respected in the Tulsa area, pastored St. James United Methodist Church, built this beautiful building. And then they're in their 80s and they're part of our church. And you know, I, remember, um, I remember walking in on Sundays and I remember running into Paul and Juanita and every single time Paul Leeming saw me and greeted me, he would greet me with tears in his eyes. And I hadn't done anything to earn his love or deserve his love. I think that he just looked at me and he saw a son in the faith. And those two luminous people in the kingdom of God would come and they would wrap me in their arms, put their arms around me, and they'd go, you're doing a great job, kid. Keep it up. We love what you're doing here, even though I wasn't doing a good job. <laughs> they encouraged me, lifted me up, helped me. I, I remember one of the most significant moments in my life Happened Father's Day 2007. Me and the senior pastor had decided to do something fun for Father's Day. That year we thought what would be really cool is if for Father's Day 
we have like three generations of dads deliver the message. So like I'm the young buck with a couple little kids, you know, or one kid at that point. So I'll deliver the message to the, you know, for the young dads and then senior pastor will do like for the middle-aged dads. And then Paul Leeming will have the old pastor. We'll have him get up and he'll deliver like as sort of the grandfather over all of us, he'll deliver the message kind of from that station of fatherhood. And so I got up and I was so eager to prove myself, you know, so I got up there and lift, uh, lit off some sermon fireworks, you know, and that felt good. And I sat down and then my senior pastor got up and he shared some stuff about fatherhood that was amazing. And then Pastor Paul got up and he started sharing about Paul's relationship with Timothy and with Titus and started talking about spiritual fatherhood and how important that is. And then he said this, words I will never forget. He looked out at the congregation and he said, church, it might be that the most significant thing that this ministry ever produces is that young man sitting on the front row right, after, right over there. And then he looked them all dead in the eye and he said, you take care of that young man. And it wrecked me. And it wrecks me still when I think about it. And I've had all of these moments, you know, that was about 15 years ago. I've had all of these moments over the last 15 years where I'd be riddled with darkness and riddled with self-doubt, riddled with fear. And I'd, I'd think about it and people would say mean things to me and stuff would happen to me. And I would think about those words that Paul Leeming said over me to that congregation that day. And somehow it would like steady me that that guy who I respected so much, that guy believed in me. That guy loved me. But that guy was looking out for me. And if Paul Leeming believed in me, maybe I can believe in myself. Maybe I can keep going because I had somebody who was taking care of me, watching out for me. And every stage along the journey, God has given us people like that in every congregation that we've been part of. There have been folks like that who have looked out for me. I'm saying to you guys tonight that this might be the most significant thing that happens in the gospel is that God doesn't just kind of save us to have some kind of abstract personal relationship with himself, but uh, Jesus says that nobody who has left home or fields or father or mother or whatever behind will fail to re- reap 100 times as much in this age. That what you actually get, like the great gift of God, is the church. So let me ask you this question tonight. What is preventing you from letting the Spirit minister the full grace of spiritual family to you? What is preventing you from letting the Spirit minister the full grace of spiritual family to you? Because that grace, that grace will heal your life. When you genuinely open your life up to other people, you let them in, that will change and transform your life. So I want to know, and you need to ask yourself, what is it that's preventing you from letting the Spirit minister the full grace of spiritual family to you? And most of us, if we're part of the church for any length of time, we know the relationships are important. And we know that God happens inside of relationships. Jesus said that wherever two or three are gathered in my name, what happens? I'm there. In the midst of them, we, d- we discover God in our relationships with one another. But for whatever reason, we hold ourselves at arm's length from people. Can I answer the question for you? What's preventing you from allowing the Spirit to minister the full grace of spiritual family to you? I'll tell you what it is. It's fear. It's fear. Because you were hurt before at some other church or you were let down by people that you had reason to trust, or you've done some things in your life, there's some stuff about you that's shameful or it's embarrassing or it's dark, 
And so what you're afraid of is that if you start trusting people again, they'll let you down again. Or what you're afraid of is that if people see this thing over here about you, then that will be the moment when you're finally thrust out of the mix for good. The fears are real, friends. And there's not a single person in this building that hasn't experienced them on some level, myself included. For all of the blessings that the church has given me over the years, the church also has, well, I've been wounded. (laughs) And I think that that's not a coincidence because I think that those relationships that have the most capacity to bless us and help us, that power also can be turned to dark purposes. And all of a sudden we're hurt. Those same people that could bless us and make our lives better, they can wound us in deep ways. And when we came to this community five years ago, for all of the beautiful things that happened at our church in Denver, we helped plant that church. And for all the amazing memories that we made and relationships that we made, relationships that last to this day and are gonna last until we go into the grave, we also came into this church deeply wounded. Deeply wounded. And I remember taking this job and thinking to myself, God, if it doesn't happen here, then it's not gonna happen for me anywhere. And I'm really not sure if I can do this again, oh God. And I would walk into this building during the week to sit down at my desk and do the work. And I'm just telling you, it's in full candor. And the spirit has so graciously healed this. So this is why I'm saying it to you. But I would walk into this building and visceral physical terror would overwhelm my body. What's gonna happen? What are they gonna say to me? What are they gonna do to me? What evil thing is gonna happen to me? What phantom strike is gonna happen to me? And I would spend my days in this office with my fists clenched looking over my shoulder and I would go home at night and I would be so ridiculously exhausted and I would say to God, God, why? Why are you making me do this? Surely there's an easier way to do this. You know, like, why, why, why do I have to have a church job? You know what would be easier? And I would say this to the Lord all the time. You know what would be easier? What would be easier is if I was like a traveling itinerant speaker. That would be amazing. So what I could do is I could breeze into town and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, you know, and light off those fireworks and do that thing. And then I'd go retreat over here to my little safe corner. And then I'd breeze into town again and I'd kind of do my thing and then go back off over here. And I'd breeze in and breeze out, breeze in and breeze out. And I could even like write books. I could make money doing that, you know, and I could just kind of like have my close, tight little circle of people over here and not to have to engage in this thing that feels so painful and so risky. And furthermore, God, people do this all the time, many of them with great success. Why do you hate me? (laughs) A thousand times, a thousand times, I wrote letters of resignation in my heart can't do it anymore. Thanks for the opportunity. I got to go do this other thing somewhere else. And every single time I would start to approach that in my heart, I would hear the spirit say, stay. But God, I don't want to stay. Stay. But God, it's so painful to stay. Stay. God, it's agony to stay in this place. I know. And I'm healing you by it. I think that it's entirely possible that God can wave the magic wand over us. 
snap his fingers and have all of that pain and agony and the hurt of relationship wash out in an instant. I think that he can do that. But do you know what I think is the more common way that God heals us? He heals us by stacking experiences. And all of a sudden our bodies start learning a new way of being. We begin to settle into space and settle into relationships. We learn a new habit of the heart, a new habit of the mind, new habit of bodies. And all of a sudden, all of that old angst that we carried into relationship is washed away because somehow the spirit has healed us over time. The psalmist says that God is the one who sets the lonely in families. That's what God does. And Mother Teresa said that the great poverty of the Western world isn't financial poverty and it isn't physical poverty. She said that it's relational poverty. We're impoverished. We don't have people that know us. We don't have people that love us. We don't have people that see the darkest stuff about us and still accept us. And we want it so bad. God has wired us for it. But here is the trick with it. You have to stay. And I get it. There are great reasons to leave churches. Sometimes churches become toxic. Sometimes a leadership culture becomes toxic. Sometimes things become so conflicted that you just can't find your way back. Sometimes the church you're part of, it's teaching a heresy, false doctrine, whatever. And it's time for you to extricate yourself from the relationship. It's time to find. And sometimes God just leads us out. I get that. But by and large, do you know how God heals us of the great wounds that have happened to us in our lives? By staying put in community. And I'm imploring you tonight especially those of you that have relationships at a distance, relationships at arm's length. You're not letting people in and you're not letting, you're not opening up your heart. I'm imploring you to start leaning into community. And I can say this, I have been part of this community for five years. This is a trustworthy place to put your heart. It is not perfect. And I'm so, there is no perfect church out there, but it's a humble community and a repentant community an honest community, an open-hearted community, and you can trust it. So please, for your own sake, lean in. Because do you know what faith makes? It makes family. And it's happening here, point number one. Point number two, Paul says this, going on in the text, 1 Timothy 1 and verse 3. Paul writes, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. Listen to Paul telling Timothy to stay. Stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Paul writes, such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. Next slide. The goal of this command is, what does the text say? Love, Love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these things and have turned to meaningless talk. Verse seven, they want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Here's point number two for you tonight. Faith makes family, but here's the second point, that all doctrine should lead us to, all doctrine should lead us to love. We don't know a lot about what was happening in Ephesus at the time, but what we, it seems was happening is you had these teachers, this was kind of in the early days of something that scholars have called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was like this atmosphere that infected the church and all manner of society, which basically said that there was this ethereal, spiritual, perfect realm out there. And that if you attained the secret knowledge, you could escape this 
blighted, awful, material world and somehow ascend into that pure spiritual realm. And it seems like we had false teachers in Ephesus that were influenced by that teaching. And then they were reading the ancient Jewish scriptures and they were allowing the Jewish scriptures to get hijacked by that mentality. And so controversial speculations and endless genealogies and myths and esoteric readings of scripture that somehow, you know, if you're a real insider... In the club over here, and if you gain the secret knowledge, you know, you'll kind of ascend out of this awful material world as well. And what does Paul say? Paul says that whole thing is riddled with foolishness. That whole thing is riddled with self-righteousness. You can't read the Bible in that way. The way that you read the Bible, the whole reason that we engage the scriptures is to lead us to, to love, which is in keeping with what Jesus says. Remember, he had a teacher of the law come to him one time. The teacher of the law said, Master, what's the greatest commandment in the Old Testament? How do you see it? And what does Jesus say? That you should love the Lord your God with all of your heart and, and, and strength. And then what are you going to do? You're going to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, all the law and the prophets, what? They hang on these two commandments. That's the whole thing. <laughs> Is that God is trying to lead us to love. And so all doctrine, all teaching should lead us to love. And unfortunately, we have this weird way in the church sometimes of just forgetting this, that we make the goal of faith something else. We make it the accumulation of knowledge, or we make it about building up arguments, or we make it impressing other people with how spiritual we are. I can remember being in college. I went to a Christian college. And I remember being in college, and there was this guy who was on staff at the college for a while, and he would speak at our chapels with a fair degree of regularity. And every time this guy got up to speak, he would talk about the visions and the revelations that he'd had. And he'd talk about how he was up in the middle of the night just this past Tuesday, and he saw angels in his bedroom, you know? And the angels spoke to him and gave him this revelation of who God was and what was supposed to be happening, you know? And always with these visions and revelations. I remember sitting there, you know, I'm like 19 years old and struggling to figure out how to pass economics class. <laughs> and I'd be listening to him speaking and I'd be thinking to myself, that why, why, what is the purpose of this? And I remember reading in the book of Colossians, Paul saying, don't let anybody whose mind is puffed up, like such people, he says, delight in idle notions and the worship of angels. Don't let them disqualify you for such a prize. He says, such people go into great detail about what they've seen and their idle minds puff them up with useless speculations. He says they've lost connection with the head from whom the whole body joined and held together by every ligament and sinew grows as God causes it to grow. Any teaching that doesn't lead you to love, guys, it's empty. It doesn't even matter how doctrinally right it is. We're supposed to be growing in love. I remember another example for you. Some of you might remember this. In the 90s, there was a book that hit the New York Times bestseller list, The Bible Code. Do you remember this? And it was this guy who said, you know, if you take the Hebrew text of the scripture, and if you set up like this little, these little algorithms, what you'll see is that the Hebrew text of scripture actually predicted world events, you know? And so it predicted communism, and it predicted the fall of the Iron Curtain, and it predicted that certain people in the White House did naughty stuff, and all this, that, and the other thing. And all of a sudden, we got all these people reading the Bible, not for the obvious reason why the Bible was written, but what are they reading it for? To maybe we can become insiders to all this cool stuff that's going on there completely ignoring what the Bible is all about, which is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your, and, and, and that you should love your neighbor as yourself. 
going past the obvious stuff, but we do it still now. I think about all of those people that are out there now. One of the things that's always just sort of baffled me about evangelical Christianity is how many teachers we have that are always getting into end-time speculation. Oh, you know, I've been reading the book of Revelation, and, you know, it's, if you read it just right, you know, you'll see that all this stuff that's happening in the Ukraine with Russia, that it was predicted ahead of time. Or you'll see all this stuff, all this political turmoil that's going on in our country that it was talked about ahead of time. And so we really need to start paying attention to this teacher guy over here because he's really, he's really kind of got the inside track on knowledge about what's going on in our country. And so what winds up, so here's the question that you always got to ask about any kind of teaching. What is the fruit? And so like if the teaching is leading us into greater fear, if it's leading us into greater paranoia, if it's leading us into greater selfishness or self-righteousness, if it's making us look upon other groups of people, Democrats, Republicans, (laughs) with suspicion, God's not in it. Because Paul says that the goal of this command is what? Love. And so if the teaching doesn't cause you to rise up in love, it's an empty teaching. Paul says elsewhere, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he says, if I speak in the tongue of man or of angels but don't have love, what am I? It's just empty clamor. He says, verse two, if I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but don't have love, what am I? But I'm, I'm nothing, and if I give all I possess to the poor and I give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I don't have love, I gain. What is the goal of the spiritual life? Love. And if we're being conquered by anger and fear, then the teaching is not coming from God, and the teacher is not of God. That's the measure, that's the bar. One of the great desert fathers, a guy by the name of Agathon, Abba Agathon, said this, that an angry man, even if he were to raise the dead, is not acceptable to God. And why is that? Because God is love. And so the closer we get to God, what happens to us? We become a people of love. And so faith makes family, and all doctrine should lead us to love. That's the kind of people that we ought to be. But then Paul ends with this, and here's the last point, and with this we'll begin to make the turn into communion. Paul writes this towards the end of chapter 1. He says, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them you may fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Verse 20, among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Here's the last point for you tonight, is that we can shipwreck our faith. We can shipwreck our faith. And when I read this text weeks ago and started meditating on it, thinking about this message, I was so gripped by that notion of the shipwrecking of our faith. And I thought about how when I was a kid, we talked about people falling away and backsliding often. We talked about people shipwrecking their faith. But often when we talked about people shipwrecking their faith, it was really more about behaviors of certain kinds. So I was like, oh, so-and-so has gone to drinking. They've shipwrecked their faith. Or so-and-so has 
succumb to a pornography addiction and they've shipwrecked their faith. Or so-and-so started dating a non-Christian girl, they've shipwrecked their faith. But for Paul, that's not what it means to shipwreck your faith. Paul says that I've turned over Hymenaeus and Alexander so that they may be taught not to, do you remember what the text says? To blaspheme. It's heresy. It's heresy. That the shipwrecking of our faith is really about our believing things that are not true about God, that are less than the reality of God, and our beginning to propound those things as genuine truth. Now, here's the truth about all heresy, okay? I'm gonna define it all for you right here, right now. Do you know what heresy is? All heresy is an attempt to domesticate the wild reality of God. It's a reduction of God. In the first century, we had it here with the Gnostics. The Gnostics saw, and I think they understood rightly, that God is this immaterial being that dwells in this spiritual space of perfection. And they couldn't figure out how that kind of a God could relate to the material world of food and trash and sexuality and all of that. So you know what they said? He doesn't. (laughs) He's just over there somewhere. And meanwhile, all of this stuff is just going to go to smash one day. And they invented a heresy. They couldn't square those mysteries. In the second century of the church, there was a guy by the name of Marcion. Marcion couldn't figure out how the God of the Old Testament and the Father of Jesus Christ could be one and the same person. So you know what he did? He said, they're not the same person. And he cut the Old Testament out of his Bible, the Marcionite heresy. In the third and the fourth century, late third century, early fourth century, there was a guy by the name of Arius. Arius couldn't figure out how there could be more than one person inside of deity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all equal. That can't be. And this guy, Jesus, is like an amazing guy, but he can't be like at the same level as God... The Father, so Jesus, Arius said, is like the greatest of all created beings and maybe is even divine in some sort of way, but he's not equal to God. And there we have the Arian. That's that's what it all is, guys. That we see the mystery and the wonder of God and our minds are staggered by it and there are things about it that are troubling to us and so we go, and we try to reduce it in some way and right then and there you have a heresy. When the wonder of God is all of a sudden leaked out and by the way, no relationship can sustain the loss of wonder. It always dies. Mandy and I just celebrated 22 years of marriage. Thank you, I appreciate that. We, uh, we're going on a quarter century. I like that because it sounds impressive. And um... <laughs> I remember falling in love with her 25 years ago. And I could never quite put my finger on what it was about her that I loved. And I'm 25 years later, and do you know what is true? I still can't. And eHarmony would have never put us together. (laughs) And if you know Mandy, you know that that is true. We're like peas and carrots, apples and oranges. We are as different as different gets. And you know what has sustained our relationship for all this time? I've said this over and over to people. Do you know what it is? Mutual fascination. (laughs) And there are plenty of times that we bug the living daylights out of each other. But mutual fascination is the thing that keeps it going. And I have, like I, I knew like this much about her when we first started dating. And now actually 25 years later, I think I know like this much about her. (laughs) 
and I have all of these moments where I'll look at her and I'll just go, I got nothing. (laughs) And I'm staying around. And she'll have all of these moments where she'll look at me and she'll go, you might be the most ridiculous human being on the face of the planet. And I'll say to her, you married me. (laughs) And then I'll also say to her this, I'll say, babe, it ain't getting any better. I'm in my 40s now, I care so much less. The situation can only get so much worse. We're never gonna figure each other out. Thank God for that. We keep being surprised by the wonder. By the way, married people, if that's what you're demanding of one another, that you need to have each other figured out, you're gonna kill it. Stop doing that. And if that's true of our relationship with each other, how much more our relationship with Almighty God. One of my favorite writers, a guy by the name of David James Duncan, said this. He said that we can seek truth without wonder's assistance, but seek is all we will do. There will be no finding. For until wonder descends, unlocks us, and turns us slack-jawed as a plastic shepherd, truth is unable to enter. Wonder, he says, may be the aura of truth, the halo of it, or something even closer. Wonder may be the caress of truth touching our very skin. Wonder is unknowing, experienced as pleasure. That's what we get with God. We come into the house of God for worship and we confess Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Can you explain that? No. Can you trust it? Yes. We come in here and we remember that one member of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity, took on human flesh for us and for our salvation, and he died and he was buried and he was raised to life, and somehow that's changed the world. Can you explain that? Can I explain that? No, and I'd be a heretic if I tried. But you can trust it. And we come in here every time we gather for worship, And we believe that somehow by the power of the Holy Spirit, that second person of the Trinity made flesh comes to us in the bread and the cup and renews us as the family of God and changes our lives. Can we explain that? No. Are we here to try to explain it? What are we here to do? We're here to cast ourselves wildly into the wonder and the mystery of God and to have our lives refreshed and renewed by it. You can't figure out God. And that's a good thing. Because what that means is that forever we're going to be surprised by the wonder of God. And he's just going to keep refreshing us over and over and over again. And so with that, church, can we stand to our feet? And would you take your communion elements in your hands? This moment, by the way, is called the great mystery. This moment where we take bread and cup and we lift them up before the Lord and we invite the wonder-working presence of the Spirit into our midst. And somehow, just like Jesus did in the first century, he uses our own hands and he takes these elements and he lifts them up. The great high priest does it. We don't know how it works, but he takes it and he lifts it up before the Father and he blesses it and he breaks it and he gives it back to us. And somehow we find ourselves all tangled up in the wonder of relationship with him. And so here it is, friends. On the night that he was betrayed, 
after he had given thanks, he took the bread and he broke it. Would you break it? And he gave it to his disciples and he said, take this all of you and eat. This is my body. It's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, hold on to those elements. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and he said, drink from this, all of you. But this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. Do it whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So here it is, Lord Jesus. Here it is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Great mystery, God. We offer these things to you. We don't know how this works, but we are trusting tonight that somehow your presence is gonna rush upon us and renew us. So Lord Jesus, here it is. We pray that tonight you would fall upon us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that with the mystery and the magnitude of your presence, this bread and this cup would become for us a real participation in the body and the blood of Christ. And I'm asking that tonight, that wherever our faith has become moribund, wherever our faith has become stale, wherever wonder has leaked out of the room, wherever we have lost the romance of faith tonight, here at the table, give it back to us. Because what we want is you. Church, the body and the blood. Can we take it together? And now, church, would you begin to let thanksgiving and gratitude, worship, praise arise in your heart to the Lord? Come on, friends, let it out. Let it out. Give him your praise. Give him your worship. I promise you, as you start doing it, that the wonder of God will descend upon you. So come on, tell him you love him. Tell him you love him. Tell him you're grateful. Plead for more of his presence. He'll give it to you. Jesus says that God gives the spirit. He gives it without limit. Come on. Come on. Let your worship rise up tonight. Centerpiece at all that 
we look to our God, we see nothing but love and the requirement for us to love. How great is our God that He would lavish on us His love. If you, we look to God and we see a God that loves us, but now I want you to look to each other. And if you're with, put your hand on someone next to you on their shoulder. If you feel comfortable with that, please. And now I want you to tell them that they're loved. You're loved. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, for we know brothers and sisters loved by God that he has chosen you, that he has chosen you. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. So tonight, as we leave this place, I pray that the Lord who loves you would bless you that the Lord who loves you would keep you and make his face this week shine upon you. His big, bright, smiling countenance, as God says. A God who delights in you. And that you would receive from him tonight his love, his joy, and his peace. In Jesus' name, the name that we've worshipped tonight, everyone says... Amen. Friday night, I love you. Can we say thank you to Pastor Andrew? He stepped to the back to, um, to, to offer you to sell some of his books and sign that. Um, but before you leave, I want you to tell him, and I want to tell Pastor Andrew, we believe in you. We are so thankful for you here at New Life Church. We do. And if you're new and it sounds too good to be true, to be chosen and part of a family, you have one step. Come see Vincent and I at Guest Central. And then remember, next week is baptism. Sign up if you want to get baptized. And we have the military conference next Friday and Saturday. Please come and see Pastor Dave in the back as well. We love you. See you next week.